Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. by virtue of the structure of traditional worship to hear two scriptures this morning. We got to say together our gathering liturgy from the book of Revelation and now hear the sermon text today from the Psalms. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament keep repeating this refrain that all the earth shall worship the Lord, all peoples from everywhere. And for the psalmist, whether it was King David or not, to write the words about from the farthest ends of the earth are both ironic and prophetic. Because in David's day, and even the days when the Old Testament were being written down and made into a cohesive text, even in those days, the world was much smaller than it is now. I mean, we just had four new people go around the world, right, in space, and yet they are able to see just how vast our world is and how amazing it is. And David and any other psalmist never had that opportunity, that perspective. But they believed, probably through the movement of God and the Holy Spirit, that God's presence and praise would fill this world. And that is precisely what the Methodist Church has been trying to do is to allow those two texts and many more to be actualized in how we exist in this world. Over the course of September, we've been talking about reasons why Methodism is worth saving. And some of you might be going, I didn't know that it was under threat. And it may be, it may not be. And that's just where we happen to be in our denomination's history. That we are at a point where our church might break at the next gathering of Methodists from all over the world called General Conference. We were supposed to meet in 2020, but then that little thing called COVID happened. And we're not sure when they'll have the opportunity to gather again. They are slated as every four years, every quadrennium to meet in 2024. And if they don't have the opportunity to meet before then to try to make up 2020, then by 2024, someone might call the question on what will happen to our church. And Almost all of us here today have had the unfortunate experience of living through a denomination breaking. We've witnessed this with our Lutheran siblings in faith. We have witnessed it with our Presbyterian and even our Episcopalian siblings in faith. And we know that that is often very messy. And of course it is. It goes all the way back to the first time Christianity broke. It has broken many, many times, but in the early church, It so happened that after the age of the apostles, that there were little epicenters, much like Paul ministry in the Roman Empire, where people had kind of gathered together in communities and there was a leader over them. And it just so happened that they were male and they were referred to as patriarchs. And those patriarchs were in charge of not just the administration of those small communities, but they were theologians and they were scholars and they were pastoral leaders. And they were kind of all over what had been the Roman Empire. But then something happened, which usually happens with humankind, 
they started to bicker over who was really in charge, right? Certainly, they couldn't agree as a council, so they started to wonder if one of them was more in charge than the other, and they started to have this argument. And this is me paraphrasing church history. You're not going to find this in a book with this kind of vernacular. But what ended up happening was that one of them said, I am in charge. I am in charge, and the rest of you, you're still in charge of your area, but I am over you. And they said, no, you're not. And the one who thought he was in charge said, well, then you're not a part of the church anymore. I excommunicate you. And they said, you can't excommunicate us. We excommunicate you. And thus we got the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches because they couldn't agree on who was in charge. And they couldn't agree on how they were going to govern themselves. And so they split. And even today, we have experienced lots and lots of splitting in denominations. In fact, the Methodist Church has been through multiple iterations. After the founding of what was originally the Methodist Episcopal Church in this country, at the start of the Civil War, we split over inclusion because the Southern Methodist Episcopal Church wanted to allow slaveholders to be members of their church. And so we broke. And we have had other breaks, and we have reformed, and we have had lots of iterations of Methodism in this country and in the world, but we are at a place right now where it is remarkable what United Methodism is. And so I want to share with you just some numbers that are kind of mind-boggling, right? I'm still a person who, if I have $100 in my pocket, that's a lot of money to me. So these numbers are astounding. In the United States of America, there are 7.7 .7 million United Methodists. It's a lot of United Methodists. It's a lot of people. There are 16.2 million United Methodists in the world, which means that there are more United Methodists outside of the United States than there are within. In the World Methodist Council, which is a gathering, it's an organization that Methodist denominations and churches can choose to be a part of. The United Methodist Church is a part of this. We have many siblings in Methodism. You have free Methodists, you have concordant Methodist churches like the Korean Methodist Church. You have all kinds of different Methodist stream denominations and churches that choose to come together and at least have conversation at the World Methodist Council. And of that, 39.7 million people are found in that Methodist Council. There's a lot of Methodists in this world. However, even that isn't fully inclusive because there are those that are not officially a part of the World Methodist Council. But at last check, there were 80 million people that would call themselves a Methodist in this world. 80 million people. And the United Methodist Church is the largest of the Methodist family. We are the single largest. And Methodism is a huge part of the world. There are 1.2 billion Catholics in the world. They make up half of all Christianity. And then 35% of that remaining 50 are Protestants. The Orthodox churches and some other out, outcroppings of, of Christianity exist over there. But if we're talking about Protestantism and we're talking about Methodism, we are one of the largest Protestant denominations as United Methodists in the world. And here's why that matters. The United Methodist Church 
has churches in 130 countries. 130 nations in this world have a United Methodist Church just like this one. And in 2018 alone, Methodists in this world gave $6.3 billion. $6.3 billion is a lot of money that people entrust into the hands of Methodists, Methodist doctrine, and Methodist theology. And that changes the world. Because my third thing that I believe is so important about the United Methodist Church and Methodism in general is that we are a global church. Not every denomination thinks of itself as global. Some of them think of themselves as an American denomination that has global outcroppings, has missions and ministries there, or it has people who are kind of in a hierarchy, right? But the central understanding is that they are an American denomination. And that's a valid understanding because a lot of Protestantism didn't come into existence until the United States of America was formed because it was illegal to be anything else than Anglican and Catholic in a lot of Europe. And so it wasn't until people could come here that they could actually be something else. And so they founded denominations here. Even the Methodist Episcopal Church, even though it was technically founded when John Wesley laid hands on Francis Asbury and Thomas Coke in England, it wasn't until those two journeyed here and started to serve as itinerant Methodist preachers that Methodism really became a thing in the world. And so we have this wrestling that we do as Methodists because certainly there are a lot of American Methodists, almost half, not quite. There's a lot of us. No other country has as many United Methodists as we do. But that doesn't mean that we are better than any other country or that we are better than any other country with Methodists in it. And that is actually how we understand ourselves. Every four years, going back to 1968, when the United Methodist Church was actually formed, as it is today, going back to that, every four years, we have a gathering of Methodists called General Conference. And there are over 800 delegates at this. And they form a congressional body that will decide how the church is going to run, what its priorities are going to be, what its budget's going to be. They are, have the opportunity at those gatherings to decide, are we going to amend, are we going to change or eliminate pieces of our polity, how we run the church, and in some ways how we feel about things. There are some doctrinal standards that are untouchable. You're not going to suddenly decide that Jesus wasn't Christ. That's just not going to happen. But there are other things that can happen. And so they have that power. But here's what's beautiful about General Conference is that half of them are clergy and half of them are laity. Equal parts. And so they have to work together. And it's clergy and laity from all over the world that have to gather together. It's actually more fascinating, fascinating than the United Nations. Because the cool thing is that each delegation from all these different countries, there's more than one person. And so you actually get to see them interacting with each other. And you get to witness how people as Methodists have friendships and working relationships and understand being companions in Christ differently than we do. I mean, I know that we're American citizens and we all like to think that we have you know, figured out the best way. And maybe we have, maybe not. But... 
we exist within a larger family of faith. And Methodism helps us to remember that we need to push back upon a very basic human inclination, which is to create hierarchy. And I'm not talking about somebody needs to be in charge. I'm talking about a hierarchy of society that says that I don't care if I'm not at the top as much as I care about not being at the bottom. Right? Almost every society has created that pyramid scheme. Few people at the top, most people at the bottom. And what ends up happening is you kind of spend your whole life in that secular idea of trying to say, you know, I'm, I'm shooting for the top, but even if I don't make it to the top, I just got to make sure that there's somebody below me, right? You do not want to be on the bottom. You want to be somewhere in there, right? And in the, in the United States, we call that middle class, right? And even that wasn't good enough. But then we came up with upper middle class, right? Because you got to keep making like distinction. We love distinction. However, that is not the way of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, if you want to find me, I'm at the bottom, I'll be down there washing your feet. That's where I'll be, right? And if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be at the top of that pyramid, then you better get down here with me because the first are going to be last and the last shall be first. Jesus inverts that pyramid. Actually, Jesus destroys that pyramid. He gets rid of that concept. And we base this in what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian church. In his letter, he specifically says that Christ is the great equalizer. There is no male or female. There is no Greek or Jew. In Jesus, we are all equal. And that was radical then, and I think it's pretty radical now. Because we are a people that look for distinction. As human beings, not as Americans, not as Methodists, but as human beings, we look for distinction. It's mind-boggling how far back in history that goes. I mean, thousands, of, tens of thousands of years that goes back in history. And you can find people that want to make distinction over gender, people that want to make distinction over skin color. You can find all kinds, or, or even what you do for a living. The caste system in India was really about what your family did for a living. And over there, it was about the priesthood being at the top. And so it's incredible to see that there's this yearning to enact that, right? Because it's feeling safe that I'm not at the bottom. But then what does Jesus say? I am the cornerstone. I am the ground. I am your firm foundation. I'm the one at the bottom. And if you build on me, then you will not be shaken. But if you insist on building your own pyramid scheme, you're going to be in trouble. And a pyramid can only go so high. It's only dictated by how wide the base is. But if we are a pillar, which is what Christianity is called to be, a pillar, then we can truly reach the heavens. I'm not talking about building the Tower of Babel. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if Christ is our base and we continue to build the next level that others can stand equally upon, then we will eventually continue to rise. And that's how Christianity maintains its position as a beacon of light, a lighthouse for the world. But in Methodism specifically, we recognize that 
everyone is equally Methodist. It's not that we're better because Methodism has been in our country longer. It's not it at all. Instead, we recognize that sometimes people actually figure out things better in other countries. And in Methodism, we all don't worship the same. We don't do that. I mean, we don't even worship the same here in Crozet. We were very different about an hour ago. Very different. But I'm talking about drastic difference in other countries. In other countries, you can go to places where you don't understand their language. Maybe you're not fluent in their language. Maybe you don't understand how they're dressing or the function of their clothing. Maybe you're not even sure what their daily culture is or what they're feeding you. I've had that experience. But there is one thing that you can find when you are a United Methodist. You can go to another country and not speak the language and not know anybody there. And if you are a United Methodist, you have a home. I have been to countries where I myself was not fluent in the language. And as you're trying to tell them who you are, you usually can get out some version of Jesus or Christ and people start to connect things. They get confused when they start asking me if I'm a padre. But I have been in other countries and they say to me, ah, methodista. Yes. Now we're talking, right? Now you know me and I know you. And we all know that no matter what happens in this interaction we're having, that we believe in grace, which makes everything better. Other denominations don't have that same understanding. I want to tell you a joke that my grandfather used to tell. And I'm going to preface this by saying he was a Southern Baptist from a really small town in Georgia called Dublin that wasn't named Dublin because it was Irish Catholic. It was Irish Protestant. So I'm going to start with that. But I believe that this is a helpful understanding that kind of goes back to that first split that I told you about earlier. And that is that the story goes like this. And the theology is not great. I don't take any credit for the theology. So here's what happens. A Catholic woman dies and she goes to heaven. And she gets up there to the pearly gates and St. Peter greets her and starts to give her the tour. Because that's immediately what you do when you get to heaven. You want to know where everything's laid out, right? So he starts to give her the tour. And he shows her, you know, here's the throne room. And here is where we're going to eat tonight with Jesus. And, you know, here is your room. And she goes into this room that is just filled with Catholics. And there she stays. And then St. Peter goes back to the gates because now a Baptist woman has died. And he goes to the gates, and once more he greets her, welcomes her in, starts to give her the tour. Here's the throne room. Here's where we'll be eating with Jesus. And they come to that room with the Catholics. And he goes, shh, you have to be very quiet. Don't make a sound. Once they get past the room, he says, okay, we can talk again. She says, why couldn't we talk? What's in that room? He says, those are the Catholics. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> Methodists, no, we're not the only ones here. <laughs> we're not the only ones here. And in fact, even in Methodism, you're always trying to figure out who you are. And this is where the tension lies between trying to figure out how we're all together and yet we're so different. Because I like to go to general conference. I've crashed a couple of them now. I have no voice and no vote, so I wear snarky t-shirts and, you know, hang out with people. Because where else would an extroverted Methodist want to be than a general conference where you can just meet people? 
So I will go to general conference and it's amazing to see how Methodism looks in other countries and in other places of the world. And they have figured out some wonderful things. I have gone to general conference and I've had the opportunity to see worship being led by the African delegations. And it's amazing to see how there are entire bodies of people that are good with percussion and can keep a beat and dance. We struggle with that sometimes here. We struggle with that, right? We're all like, it's like syncopated. I don't even know what we're doing. I don't even try anymore. You'll see me. I'm like, okay, we're just going to. I, I, I can't do it. It's just not one of my spiritual gifts. But then I've had the encounter also. I've been in prayer services with Korean Methodists. And let me tell you something. I thought we knew how to pray, right? You, you would think that European descendants would know how to pray because all of these prayers, St. Francis of the CC, you know, there's all these wonderful prayers that people talk about. You have not seen prayer until you've been with Koreans praying. They do this thing where they fill an entire room and everybody prays at the same time out loud. And I'm a pretty extroverted person, but that's distracting. And I'm like, well, I can't even hear anything. What are they doing? Like, there's like stuff coming. And it doesn't help that some of it's in Korean and some of it's in English. And it's happening and I'm getting ADD listening to it and I'm feeling all discombobulated and anxious because I, I, I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and we are quiet during prayer time. And it doesn't go on that long, right? I have to do like preemptive therapy if we're going to be quiet for five minutes in the church. Because what happens if it gets quiet for too long? You start to hear people clearing their throats, coughing, sniffing, and then somebody gets really desperate and drops a hymnal just so we can move on. Because we're not good at that. That's not one of our things. We don't, we don't you know, we want to pray and then be done. And that's sad. But when you see the Koreans and you get to be a part of that, I remember I was like so overwhelmed and I said to my friend Wontok, I said, Wontok, what is going on here? Because I don't get it. And Wontok goes... It says in the Bible that God knows you. Yeah? God knows your voice. Yeah? God can tell your voice and your prayer in the cacophony of this room. That's good theology. Now, I mean, I know these things, right? I'm, I'm an American Methodist. I know that God knows my voice. I talk an awful lot in God's house. I think God knows my voice. I know that God hears me when I talk, uh, when I pray or when I preach. I know this. Uh, when I complain especially, God spends a lot of time breaking down my complaints. And so I know that God knows my voice and knows what I am saying. But then to experience with my body what it is to be in a room full of 200 people praying out loud at the same time, and then to feel the assurance that God knows my voice and my prayer in the midst of that? It's pretty incredible. That's an experience everyone should have at least once. To know that in the midst of all of that chaos and cacophony, that God can focus on you. What a gift. And so they do that prayer so well. And we could try it over here, but it would be a hot mess, and I'm not leading us in that. I, that is not my gift, right? You're, we're, we're just, we've got to focus on what we do well. But even as Methodists, we start to look for ways in which we can identify 
ourselves within a larger crowd, right? So I told you a few weeks ago when I went down to North Carolina for the inaugural meeting of the Reynolds Leadership Program, and it was all Methodist clergy from the southeastern jurisdiction, because even in the United States, there's so many Methodists, we have to break it up into regions. And then the regions are broken down mostly into states. Some states are large enough so that they have multiple conferences. Um, Virginia is almost one united conference. There's a small piece over in the Cumberland Gap that is, that is a kind of a conglomerate, the Holstead Conference. But in Virginia, it's almost all of us are together. And so when I got to this thing, you're like, hey, we're all Methodists from the southeastern jurisdiction. And then it didn't take very long for us to be like, okay, so which annual conference are you? Oh, you're from North Georgia. Okay, I got it. And all of those down there with the great tans, they're from Florida. And you start to figure out where you are. And that was just me and another clergy person from Virginia. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes I'm just going to hang out with her because I'm not going to get those ridiculous questions that people from outside of Virginia ask you. Like, so what's going on with West Virginia? We don't talk about West Virginia. This is Virginia. And there's always somebody who, like, is it like a constitutional lawyer or thinks they are? And they're like, you know, it was actually illegal for West Virginia to secede from Virginia back in the Civil War. I'm like, that's not a thing. We're not talking about this. We're not, we're not having this conversation. Nobody in Virginia wants to have that conversation. I was like, West Virginia is doing its West Virginian thing. God love them. Go forth. So you do. You look for people that are like you, right? You're like you. But even in this conference, we are not all alike. I mean, we're not all alike here in Virginia. I mean, most of us, you know, we have a little regional flair, and we actually start to show that. So if you start to get in a room with a bunch of clergy from Virginia, we're going to figure out what district we're on. We are on the Charlottesville district, which is kind of bizarre because it runs from Culpeper all the way down past us. And Crozet is not Culpeper, right? We're the Charlottesville district. Like when somebody shows up in blue and orange, we know what they're talking about. They're not a Mets fan. We know what's going on. We have flavor that's unique to us here and we understand it. And then you look at that and you're like, okay, so even in the district we can kind of subdivide, right? And then we can divide even more by exactly where we are, right? How far are you from Charlottesville, right? Are you in Whitehall or are you in Crozet? Where are you? You can start to divide that. And so you start to see that if we're not careful, that could be hierarchy, right? It could be hierarchy. But the glorious thing about Methodism is that our foundation is Jesus Christ. And so it doesn't matter if you serve on the Eastern Shore and I serve in Crozet. It doesn't matter if you have spent your entire life on the Elizabeth River District in the 757. You are still a United Methodist with me. And that is the actual history of the Methodist Church. We are a people in United Methodism that exist because two totally separate people decided to join in 1968 in Dallas, Texas. They decided. And I mean, most of us have some kind of grasp on Methodism, right? You know that John and Charles Wesley were Anglican priests. They were from England. Uh, you might know, you know, they're Oxford educated. You can kind of get the thrust of where you're going with that theology and that history and, and how that came into be. And if you're a really good Methodist, then when I dropped the names of Francis Asbury and, and Thomas Koch, you were like right there with me, right? You knew what was going on. You were like, yes. And then some of you were like, Cokesbury, we got it. And so... We are a people that kind of know ourselves, but let me tell you about the united piece. The united piece comes from the evangelical united brethren. They are not 
Anglicans. They are from the opposite end of the spectrum. So if you start to look at Christianity, you go Catholics way over here, and who do you think is on the other end? My grandfather would have thought that it was his Southern Baptist Convention, but he's wrong. There's actually somebody to the right of them because you have Baptists and then you have Anabaptists. Baptists came into existence in this country. Anabaptists had to flee to this country. Anabaptists are rebaptizers. These are people who were living in a world that was entirely about infant baptism at that point between the Anglican church and the Catholic church. And so they started reading their scriptures and they went, Jesus was baptized as a 30-year-old. Like, we're not going to baptize babies. We're going to let people choose when they want to be baptized. We're going to let them choose. And so anybody who is baptized as an infant, and in the Catholic church is supposed to be baptized before you're six weeks old. So anybody who was baptized well before they had agency, we're going to give them the opportunity to choose to be baptized. And that's what they did. They started to baptize. Well, they were rebaptized. You see the, the Anabaptist piece. It's a judgment piece. They're rebaptizing. We don't rebaptize. We believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Why are you rebaptizing? You can still find Anabaptists. In fact, most of them are people that you know as, as Amish and Mennonite. They're Anabaptists. And the Evangelical United Brethren was itself two Anabaptist smaller denominations the Evangelical Church, Evangelical Brethren, and then the United Church in Christ. And they joined together, and they became the Evangelical United Brethren. And then something really weird happened. These Anabaptist-descended people sat down at a table with some United Methodists. And they didn't agree on baptism. And they didn't agree on a lot of other things their polity, how they were going to run their church. They didn't even always agree on, you know, who the big names in the hymns were, right? You got to know who your hymns are. But they agreed on grace. And so they chose to be united by grace in Jesus Christ. And thus the largest denomination of Methodism was formed. It's incredible to see what people who are different can accomplish when they choose to be united in Christ. And that is what Methodism allows us to do, to choose to be united in Christ. We don't all speak the same way. We don't even speak the same way in the Virginia Annual Conference. But because of Methodism, we can be in a powerful relationship with people that don't speak English We can be in a powerful relationship with people that don't dress and worship the way we do because even as alien as their worship may seem, look and feel and sound to us, we will catch the name of Jesus Christ. And we will know that that is for us as well. And that what we have, as much as they have never seen it and as alien it is for them, it's theirs as well. Methodism gives us that. So, I've shared with you how much I think that our unique understanding of grace is crucial to who we are. I shared with you last week how I think that the idea that we are a people who understand ourselves to be transformational people. We have been transformed by that grace, and then we expect that we should be working to help transform other people, this world, because we are building the kingdom here, right? 
The theology of that joke my grandfather used to tell is that we are all going somewhere else. So what we do here really doesn't matter. But that same book of Revelation says that the kingdom of heaven is coming here. It comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And so what we do in this world does matter because we're going to be here, here. And it matters. And because it matters, we have to do things that matter here. And that's what the church has always believed, that it's not enough that I have a personal relationship with Jesus if I let other people suffer. It's not enough that I know that God's grace is sufficient for me if I live in a community where people are constantly being told that they are unloved and unworthy of time and resources. And so that's why Methodism believes that we are to be transformers of the world. But I believe that that global component is important. I think it's important for us to realize that there are some Methodists in other places that have figured things out and that we should not only be in relationship with them, but we should listen and learn. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but Christianity is atrophying in this country. Our numbers are declining, not just in Methodism and United Methodism, in Christianity. But in the past four-year quadrennium between 2016 and 2018, the Methodist con uh, conference in the Congo added 400,000 people. People in four years. They're doing something over there incredible. They're doing something that Christianity hasn't seen since the book of Acts in Pentecost. They are doing something, and we should figure it out because I don't believe that Christianity is over in the United States. I don't believe that. I also don't believe that Methodism is doomed to a slow, agonizing death. I don't believe that either. But if we're going to be better, then we got to figure out what's working. Right? What is working over there? And so we figure it out by talking to them. And they will tell us because we are Methodists together. They will share that information. And that's the gift of a global denomination. It eliminates the hierarchy because the bishop of that Congo conference is absolutely equal to the bishop of the Virginia Annual Conference, is absolutely equal to the bishop of any Texas conference, the equality lets everybody's voice have value. And I've been at too many general conferences where I realize I don't have a voice. It's the one place in this world I go where I have no voice. And yet, ironically, I get to hear voices there that change how I think and feel, and therefore how I act. And Methodism gives us that. So if something happens one day, and I have no idea when that will be, because the reality is that, again, the pandemic happened. They didn't meet in 2020. They might meet before 2024, but in all likelihood, given that you actually have to get visas for hundreds of people and get them in here to the, well, actually, yeah, they're, I think they're actually not coming to the United States for the first time ever. They're going to be going to another country. But in order to get people all around the world together, it takes time. And that's really hard to do when you're trying to take COVID checks. So it's possible that this is down the road. But Jesus says, get your lamp oil ready. You don't know when I'm coming back. So let's start asking these questions now. What is important to us? 
What is important to us as the Virginia Annual Conference? What is important to us as the Charlottesville District? What is important to us as Crozet United Methodist Church? And unfortunately, my siblings in faith, we're going to have to ask ourselves what's important as individuals. We're going to have to ask that. Because, God forbid, a church should go where you can't go, then what are you doing? Where do you go? You have to ask yourself, where do you stand? What is important to you? Is it important to you that we be bigger than ourselves, or do you want to just go off and be some little congregational church? Is it important to you that the one thing we all agree on is grace in Jesus Christ? Or do you want to build your house on something else? These are the things that we have to ask ourselves. Because maybe this will never happen. Maybe by some miracle, and I do mean miracle, I hope that God will change our hearts and minds and we will somehow figure out how not to divorce ourselves as a denomination. I pray that. I've been divorced twice. I know that agony. I don't want to do that to my church. But I pray, I pray and I hope that every single one of us are talking to God about this and that we're telling God what is on our hearts and God is moving somehow to help us to find our way forward. Because this isn't our end. We're going on to a bright and beautiful place. They close every Passover Shabbat, every Passover Saber, with these words, next year in Jerusalem. That's how they close every Passover Saber. And they do this because they believe as a people, as the Jewish people, that one day God will call them home. And home is a city on a hill. And the book of Revelation tells us that, guess what, we got an, an invitation to that place. And that we are going to have a chance to be there. And if we are going to go there, then we have to start making choices that help us get there. How do we get there? Because we're not staying here. I would be very happy to live out the rest of my days at Crozet. But we're not staying here. And yesterday, in this incredibly blessed space, a lot of us, and many of you who are here this morning, gathered here to say, until we meet again, to J.R. Sanders. We didn't say goodbye to him. He is not gone. We are going to see him again. And so we have to start thinking bigger than right here. And when we see him again, it will be at the place that God has been building. In a place where Jesus is now not just the cornerstone, but the capstone. The beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. The first and the last. So we have to ask these questions. And if you're one of those people that's like, you know what, just make the decision for me. No. I won't. And no one else here will either. We have to make our decision. No one decided to force-feed you God's grace. This is your choice. And you are God's people. So let's think about it. Let's pray about it. When the time is right, let's talk about it. Because we have been given such an incredible gift to be United Methodists in this day and age. Let's not squander it. 
Let us be a global people who believe what the psalmist wrote and what the book of Revelations proclaims, that every nation will gather and worship and give glory to our King. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.